Good morning, Piedmont. How are you feeling this morning? Are you feeling well rested? You should, you should be well rested. I am well rested. I am, uh, I'm glad to be back here with you this morning. I was on vacation with my family this past week, and it was just a joy uh, to be able to get away for a few days. And so I thought upon my return of vacation that we would speak about happiness. Because what better way to speak about happiness than returning from a energy tank on full, from a rest tank on full vacation. I mean, do you know what I'm saying about that that feeling of vacation where you just kind of come back and you're ready because you're so full of happiness. Maybe you're full of thankfulness. Maybe you're even full of contentment because that was just such a great week. Or maybe you're not. Maybe, just maybe, coming off a week of vacation provides a little bit of insight, maybe, maybe a little bit of focus, or maybe a little highlighted attention to something inside of us, to this tension inside of us that causes us to question some things. It causes us to, to really look at our lives and, and ask some tough questions. And I think the tension for everyone is a little bit different. I think there are some in this room that love work and for vacation the entire time you're there, you're thinking about coming home. You're thinking about what's going to be at home for you when, upon your arrival. Maybe you're a worry wart, and so you're thinking about everything in your house that could break. I know King Kipper is this way. When he goes on vacation, he's thinking about the water pipe that's going to break in his house. Some of you are that way. Maybe some of you are thinking about... The things at your job, they just have to get done. And if you're not there, they're not going to get done. Or at least in your mind, they're not going to get done the right way. And so while you're on vacation, you are not relaxing at all because you're just really looking forward to coming home. I think most enjoy vacation and enjoy the time away and the time away from the normalcy of life. And they welcome the new scenery and they're excited about those moments. But Towards the end of your vacation, I think most of us are kind of excited to get back home, sleep in our own bed. Some of you maybe travel uh, a little heavier because you have all the things at, at your house that you like. You've got that alarm clock you like. Maybe my, 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 So Amy and I traveled this past week, and we took a diffuser. And so if you don't know what a diffuser is, it takes these really hipster things called essential oils, which supposedly have magical powers to just make your room smell better. Uh, and so we took, because we're just those people, apparently, we took a diffuser on our vacation with us in our room to have lavender and orange and all of these wonderful things that just make our children sleep and make us feel better at night as well. And I enjoy the smell. But for so many of us, we have those things in our life that we want to take with us on vacation. We're like, well, we just can't. I can't take my bed. So vacation is nice, but when we get home, we're really looking forward to home. You know, that first night in your bed and the comfort of your place. Maybe it's that first comfort meal back. If you've ever been to Guatemala with us, one of the things that we talk about on the mission trip while we're there is the first meal that we eat upon arrival back into the States. For some, it's Chick-fil-A, right? I mean, communion with the Lord. For others, for others, it's just as simple and as not communion as possible with the Lord called Taco Bell. Like, that's just 
That, but there's all kinds of things that we look forward to upon our arrival back from vacation. We're, we're looking back to getting to some of those routines. Others could live on vacation their entire life. Cruising is an interesting thing. On this cruise, you run into, so we, we kind of went up, we went up to Canada, and so if you can think about that cruise, it's not necessarily a young, happening person's cruise, right? My family was probably the youngest family on the, on the boat, for sure, but we ran into one couple who had cruised just with this company over 60 times. They spent over 600 days just with this company on vacation cruising the world. My first thought is, who the heck can do that? I mean, like, that's awesome for you. Go you. My second thought was, why would you want to do? Like, that is a lot of days on a boat. And my wife and I get a little seasick, her a lot more than me. Why would you go on a cruise? Because our parents made us. So, you know, that's a whole other thing. They made us go on vacation. Catch that. But anyway... We, we talked to this person, and, and over 600 days on this cruise, and it just dawned on I me. Mean, some people just love vacation. Some people just really look forward to their one vacation year. Maybe several of us take three and four and five, maybe many vacations, and we just look forward to that moment. But I think it's more than vacationing that provides this heightened attention to the tension inside of us. It's the desire for happiness that exists inside of us at all times. And I think vacation really points that out to us. It shows us that we really, we desire to be happy in pretty much everything that we do. We love being happy. I, I mean, I hope you do. I love being happy. I think most people enjoy being happiness and seek after happiness throughout our life. I watched a movie recently called Yesterday. Great film. It, it's about a guy who is basically a floundering artist, and he's about to give up on his career, and then across the world, the light and the power and all electricity goes out. He gets in a, a car accident, and he wakes up to find out that in those eight seconds when the world lost power, somehow, some way, some shape, or form, everyone forgot the memory, the songs of a band named The Beatles. So he, he wakes up and he, he gets given a gift from a friend because he got in a car accident, so she gave him a gift to say, hey, feel better, and he starts playing a song called Yesterday by the Beatles, and like they're in tears, and they're, it's the prettiest song I've ever heard. He's like, yeah, it's Yesterday by the Beatles, and they're like, who are the Beatles? And so he takes this moment, and he goes throughout Google and all this to find out that nobody knows who the Beatles is. And so because he was a flowering artist, because his own songs were trash, he decided to take his memory. He's English, by the way, so he knows all of the Beatles songs very well. And he probably played them in bands and cover bands and bars throughout uh, the UK. But he takes these songs and he adopts, adapts them as his own and he begins to travel the world and he becomes the most renowned artist, as you can imagine, in the world because he has now written Let It Be. He has now re written Yesterday and Imagine and all of these wonderful songs that have impacted most of our lives in this room if you're over the age of 18, I would imagine, maybe a little older. But he, he takes these songs as his own and even Ed Sheeran is like bowing to the throne of this guy. He's like, man, you're amazing. But he feels empty. He feels like he's lost something. 
And in one of the scenes at the end of the movie, he seeks out John Lynn. See, because in this moment where everyone forgot, it also changed time and history. And John Lennon is still alive. Now, if you don't know anything about the Beatles and John Lennon, you should go home and Google that later. I'm not going to fill that in for you. But John Lennon is still alive. And he seeks him out. And he goes and has a conversation with John Lennon. And one of the key questions that he asks John, he says, John, are you happy? Are you happy? And I, and I think for us, that's one of the key questions that we ask ourselves every single day. Whether we do it consciously or not, we are a people that are consumed by seeking after happiness. A famous pastor, Scottish pastor named Thomas Boston says this. He says, what, consider what man is. He is, number one, a creature that desires happiness. And he cannot but desire it. The desire of happiness is woven into his nature and it cannot be eradicated. It is as natural for him to desire it as it is to breathe. Number two, he is not self-sufficient. He is conscious to himself that he wants many things and therefore he is ever seeking something without himself in order to be happy. We want with every fiber of our being and everything around us to find happiness. Now, sometimes through God's goodness and his providence, many of us do not have to look too far. We find happiness. But for some of us, we turn over every rock. We go through every relationship in life and we cannot find happiness. We are no closer to happiness than when we began our journey. We look for happiness and prestige or standing. Maybe it's attaining that title and you, you, you tell yourself over and over again, if I just continue to work hard in this job, if I continue to get to this place, then I'll have this title. And when I get there, then I will be happy. Maybe it's a prominent place in the community. So you tell yourself, if you serve, if you love on people, if you put yourself out there, maybe if you run for mayor and you get that position, then people will respect you. People will lift you up and you will say, man, that right there has filled my happy tank. Sometimes we look for it in people. We look for happiness in people. So we start dating and we pull out all, all our apps and we, we find these people. We go on dates or maybe we do it the old school way and we just go hang out somewhere and meet someone. And we begin to put our happiness into this other person's approval. We begin to say, as much as you approve of me, I will be happy. We get married, and we wake up one day and we go, this person no longer does things to make me happy, and then so we go, do I really wanna be married anymore? Or maybe it's a friendship, and we, we go through life, oh man, if I just had this friend, and so we, we find that person and we, we link up with them. We have things in common. We work, so, we work so well together. We're finishing each other's sentences. We're just great friends. And then they let you down. And you're brokenhearted and you're crushed. And you go, I'm no longer happy with this friendship. Maybe it's stuff. Maybe it's possessions. We gather things around us because we think that when we gather these things, they will bring happiness into our life. I just had that truck. 
You know what I'm talking about. The truck with the big wheels and the lights. I sound like a 16-year-old boy, I get it. But that truck, you know what I'm saying? That truck that's gonna make everyone turn and look and go, that's a nice truck. I mean, that truck, right? Or maybe it's just that house in that neighborhood. Because if I'm in this specific neighborhood, then people will maybe think better of me, I'll have better opportunities, I'll be in a safer place, and none of these things are necessarily bad, but if I just had this house, then I'll be happy, because right now, I don't know. I was sitting on my back deck yesterday, and by the way, I just bought that house in a neighborhood just a few months ago. And I was sitting on my back deck, and I had to, I have to blow off, I have a lot of trees, so I have to blow off my back deck probably like every other day if I want to walk out there because I have like acorns and leaves and you know two-year-olds eat leaves so I got to blow them off and I'm sitting on my back deck yesterday and I just thought you know what if I just had like an awning now, I just bought the house and I'm broke so I don't have the money for an awning because I just bought a house if I just had this awning and I caught myself in the middle of it going I, not, I didn't find myself not even six months ago saying man if I just had this house I could just sell this house for this. I could buy this house. And the Lord bless me. We got a great deal on our house. And I'm in my house. I'm not even three months in it. And I'm going, I just had that awning. <laughs> if I just had a shed to put my garage, to put my lawnmower so I don't have to kick it with my foot every time I go in my garage. If I just had a place for this. If I just had a place for that. If that ceiling fixture didn't hang this way. If that thing, you know what I'm saying. We have these things in our life. But man, if I just had this. If I just had that. Let me ask you this. Think about it really hard. What makes you happy? If you've got a pen and you've got the, the, the bullets in with you, write down, what makes you happy? This is a question that I find myself asking on the regular. I, I find myself saying, Chris, what makes you happy? And, and I think whether you do out loud or whether you do consciously, you definitely do it subconsciously on a regular basis, might even be on a daily basis or even multiple times a day. It's easy as a, what do I want for lunch today? You know, that conversation around after church, that's a fun one. Over the next few weeks, I want us to look through scripture and I want us to see that at our core, as beings, as humans, as mankind, we were made for happiness. And that happiness always begins and ends with the thankfulness and contentment in the Lord. Let me say it again. Happiness always begins and ends with the thankfulness and contentment in the Lord. In the future weeks, we're going to look at, at this idea through the life of a guy named Paul, who Paul shows the most immense amount of contentment and thankfulness in the Lord Amidst great great tragedy, tragedy, he shows it more than any other human being that I can think of. But for today, what I want us to do is I kind of want us to look at a biblical overview of happiness. I want us to understand why we are wired this way and what we can do about it. How we can kind of quench that thirst. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to go back to the very beginning Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be in verse 1. So God creates everything. He speaks it into life. Adam and Eve are created. And not soon after their creation, we see 
the scene that we call the fall. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it reads like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now let me back up really quickly. To the serpent, that is a word that we see for Satan. So this is Satan speaking to Adam and Eve in the garden after God had created them, created the world, Adam's named things, and God looks at them and says, you shall not eat of that tree. And here we have Satan say to Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan puts the seed of discontent in the head of Eve. In that moment, Eve could have very easily just walked away from the conversation. She could have squashed all of Satan's plans right then and there. But instead, I think like you and I as well, she was intrigued. She was intrigued by this thought of finding happiness or contentment somewhere else. This conversation sparks something inside of her. It's kind of like that moment where maybe you are somewhere. Maybe it's at a party. Maybe it's at a work at work or at school or something like that and somebody says something that you're kind of interested in and your ears perk up you know what i'm saying where you're kind of eavesdropping a little bit and they say something you just kind of go huh and you begin to kind of move to that conversation and try to hear what they have to say this is where eve finds herself and notice what satan does satan causes eve to question the word of God. Did God actually say? This is an extremely important strategy of Satan, and it's extremely important for us to recognize that this is his strategy. Because his first method of attack is to get us to question the efficacy of the Word of God. It is to get us to question the authority and the power of God's Word to his children. And this is exactly where Satan goes to attack. Now, let me be clear. This isn't to say that when we read tough passages that we can't, we're not allowed to doubt or we're not allowed to, to struggle or have questions. The Lord is our great high priest, and so we are to go to him with these struggles. When I read passages that are difficult in Scripture, I struggle with them. Oftentimes, my first gut instinct is to doubt. When I read about a, a passage in Scripture where there's a talking donkey, I don't automatically go, oh, that's where Shrek got it from. I get it. No, I go, talking donkey? That doesn't make any sense. How many of you have ever heard of a talking donkey, right? Outside of scripture. Not very many. I doubt those moments. How about this? When I read of the resurrection of the dead, I go, I don't know many people that have come back from the dead. I don't know about your life, but I don't know many. But what God tells us to do is to seek him, to investigate, to pray. And through the faith that he's given us, he gives us assurance that his word is true. This questioning from Satan is very different than, than just a, a mere doubt. Satan is causing Eve to question the character of God. When he asks, did God really say, what he's implying is that God is a liar. God didn't say that. God, God, God doesn't actually mean for you to take it that direction. 
What he's saying is X. God is a liar is what Satan is trying to get Eve to believe. And it's important for us to remember to guard our thoughts and take them captive. Because Jesus says it like this. He, he tells, he, talking to the Father in prayer, John 17, he says, Sanctify them, sanctify his believers, sanctify the disciples in the truth. Because God, your word is truth. We need to know and believe that God's word is truth. It is alive, it is living, it is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword and it can breathe into our life. We need not to doubt God's character. We need not to doubt who he says he is because this is inerrant. It is perfect. It is his breath into our life. Satan looks to sow that seed of discontent into Eve. Let's continue on. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for if God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan begins to water the seed of discontent with lust. Because that's who he is. John 8, 4, 4 says that he is the father of lies. Nothing truthful comes from Satan. He takes the truth, he distorts it, and he lies to us. Continue on. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Here's why Satan is such a good liar. He takes the truth, and he distorts it. See, the food looked good. God made food to look good. And so he tells Eve, oh, it, it's not bad for you. Matter of fact, it will open your eyes, which, by the way, what does it do? It does open her eyes. Takes this good thing, this good gift from God, and Satan uses it to give his lie credibility and the appeal of happiness. He does this so often in our lives. Think about sexual immorality. God made sex good. Right? I think oftentimes in church we have like this stigma about sex and sex is good. Like it is. Parents, you know it's good. It is, it is what it is. But we take this good gift and we buy into the lie that Satan is trying to get us to, to believe and convince us of. That, oh, it's not really just meant for marriage. It's not really just meant in this specific case. You, you, can, you can try all kinds of things. You can find happiness all over the place. And God says, I made something good. You're believing the lie. Think about relationships. We put our, our hope and our, our contentment and our happiness into relationships. Why? Because relationships are good. God made us to have relationships. But then we begin to put too much trust into another fallen person. We put too much trust into a friendship or a business deal. Oh, we're, we're good friends. I, I trust it. We put too much trust there. And then what happens in a relationship? Things begin to crumble. Why? Because I'm broken and you're broken as well. 
Satan takes a good thing that God gave us and he lies. From the seed of discontent, birth, unhappiness, and sorrow. Adam and Eve knew what they did was wrong directly in that moment. The end in verse 8, as the Lord walked through the garden, what did they do? They hid. They knew that they had made the wrong decision. Adam and Eve learned very quickly that the search for happiness was right in front of them that entire time. God was right in front of them that entire time. They did not need the tree. All they needed was God. But discontent shoved them away from God and towards a tree. They worshipped the creation rather than the creator. And Voskamp says it like this. Adam and Eve are simply, painfully ungrateful for what God gave them. Throughout the rest of scripture, we see this same picture of man's discontent with God's generosity. We go to the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. We see a people who wanted to be like God. Remember those words from earlier in Genesis 3 when the, Satan is speaking to Eve? What do you, open your eyes to be like God. And these people wanted to be like God, so they build this tower to get close to him. But that would only serve as an idol, supplanting God in their hearts and leaving them completely and utterly empty. Joseph's brothers later in Genesis were not content with their lives. They were not content with the love of their father. So what did they do? They sell their brother into slavery. In Exodus, the Israelites were rescued from slavery. And soon after, they turned their back on God and created their own idols. Even on the brink of receiving the promised land, they grumbled against God. I don't really want this manna anymore. I don't really want to walk like this anymore. I'm really scared of those people over there. What are they going to do to us? God, you saved us, but can you do it again? I'm not really sure. This is where they found themselves. And then in 1 Samuel, the people looked around and they saw the other people groups of the world had monarchies and they had kings to rule over them. And they became discontent with how God was allowing them and, and really structuring them to live, live. And they said, God, give us a king. He said, you don't need a king. I am your king. No, no, we want, we want a man. We want a person here ruling over us. As Americans, that should be just ironic. They want this. So God gave it to them. They received Saul, who ended up bringing shame to his household and leading a disobedient people to even more disobedience. Even when Jesus himself arrives in the form of man, he is rejected by his own people because they had their mind on the things of this world. They had their mind on prestige and power, and they were expecting a mighty Messiah who would come in like a ruling king, and he would right all wrongs. Instead, they received a humble servant, a baby, grow to a man. When you find yourself in a place of unhappiness, 
Do you question your obedience to the Lord? Or do you question his character? Are you like the Israelites and Joseph's brothers and Adam and Eve where you question God's goodness? Or do you look inside and go, have I followed the words and the way that he would have for me to live? Do you question your obedience to the Lord? Or do you question God's character? See, Adam and Eve questioned the courage of God and did not trust that he was enough. The people creating the tower were discontent with God and they desired to be like him and they questioned his goodness. Joseph's brothers did not appreciate the life God had given them and they grew jealous from discontent. The Israelites who were free from slavery saw God as a magic genie who was no longer granting their wishes and they became discontent with his goodness. And later, those same Israelites believed that they knew better than the Lord and they desired a king. They were discontent with a God who felt that, they, that he was not listening to them. And they desired a man to lead them because they were comparing themselves to the peoples around them. Where are you? Compasses are interesting. Compasses are uh, a thing that was created Navigational device was created in the roughly the second century BC. And it was primarily created as a way to get, navigate the seas because at this time trade was ever increasing. And so they came out with a compass. And they, they had known for actually hundreds of years of, of, of magnets and, and, and kind of the, the chemicals that create them and the rocks that, that make this happen. And, they came up with this thing to navigate the seas. And what's so interesting about a compass is, actually I had one of our elders mentioned, if you don't know how to use it, it's probably worthless. If you don't know where you're going, it's probably worthless to you. But what's so interesting about a compass is if you do know where you're going, and you know how to use it, it can be one of the greatest tools ever. In 2013, there was a man, we'll call him Frank because I can't pronounce his name. Uh, he's from Norway. And he went to work one day. He worked at a gas chemical plant in Norway. It was any other day. It was a normal day. Frank goes into work. Later that afternoon, terrorists come into the plant and they take seeds of the plant, killing several of his fellow employees. And Frank and two or three others find a corner of the plant to hide in. And for two days, they hide in this plant, scared for their lives, not knowing what's going to happen next. They're hearing gunshots. The terrorists had taken hostages, and they're fearful for everything. At 2 a.m., after being captured, after being held up in this place for about two days, they decided they were going to make a run for it. Frank happened to still have a little battery on his cell phone. He takes his cell phone out, and he has a compass app. And he pulls out the app, and at 2 o'clock in the morning, Frank and the two or three others leave the building run over a fence with barbed wire and run for several miles through the desert land of Norway with a compass on a cell phone. See, they found themselves in the middle of great tragedy. They found themselves in the middle of a place that was very difficult to live. They didn't know what was going on, but what they did know is that the compass would take them to freedom. The compass would take them to a place where they would find happiness. 
What compasses do you have in place in your life? What things do you have in your life to point you to happiness? You see, through our scripture, as we talked about this morning, happiness begins and ends with contentment in the Lord. Jesus came so that you and I could have a reunited relationship with God. And when we understand as people that we no longer have to hide in shame, we no longer have to hide in struggle, we don't have to feel bad about ourselves. No, because the Savior of the world, the King of the universe, put a price on you and said, you are loved. Now turn and run after me. And I think sometimes when we're in the middle of our deserts in Norway, we might get lost. We, we might look at the compass and we might go, God, I don't, I don't know where you are. I don't know my north from my south. But God says, I'm here. Look up. I'm here. Look up. When you walked in this morning, hopefully you received one of these compasses. Don't try to use it as a compass because it's a cheap knockoff or it doesn't work. But you get the point. It's a compass. And attached to it was a little tag. And when I was thinking about this series, what I wanted us to do is I wanted us to have a reminder. I wanted us to have a reminder through this season of thankfulness that God is good. All the time. And all the time. God is good. And so I, I began to think, what passage, what, what word of truth would we need to hear in moments of desert land in Norway to find ourselves in a place of happiness and truth? I think it's Psalms 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Notice he doesn't say he's going to give you the desires of your heart. Then delight yourself in the Lord. He says, fix your eyes, fix your heart, fix your posture in life on God. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. I'd love to encourage you. There's some pins on the back table. There might be some pins in the seat back in front of you. I'd love to encourage you to write down that passage, Psalm 37.4. And I'm even going to take another step further. I'd like to encourage you for the next five weeks. Maybe hang it somewhere in your house. Maybe it's on, on your mirror in your bathroom. Maybe it's in the kitchen for the whole family to see it every morning when they get ready. Maybe it's on your car keys to take it with you. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and to give you the desires of your heart. Because we're all searching for happiness. We set up tents in all kinds of places. We look for God and we look for happiness in all kinds of places. But he said, if you seek me, you will find me. Delight yourself in the Lord and I'll give you the desires of your heart. As I close, I want us to remember that God does not simply Tell us to come and continue to be the person you are, or to continue to act in the ways that you've acted. He says, Come and follow me. Lay everything down and follow me. He requires all praise, all glory, all honor. 
One writer says it like this. We may become less so that he may become more. We're going to sing a song here in just a moment. We sang at a fashion camp with our students this past summer. And it's a song that has really just hit my family's heart. One of the, one of the lines in there says, Why does my heart grow weary? Don't be so downcast, oh my soul. You are in every moment. You are my greatest miracle. And that's who Jesus is for me, and he is that for you as well. If you repent from your sins and put your faith in Jesus, he will be your greatest miracle. You don't have to run around this world searching for happiness because he has come to you and said, I am your happiness. Surrender, love, peace. You find it all at the foot of the cross.